picture this. It's a close friend or family member's birthday coming up, and you want to get that person a special gift. You want to get him or her something unique, something personal, something better than the gift card you pick up from Walgreens on the way to their house right before their birthday. You want to get this person an item that requires some planning, an item that even requires a process to put together. So let's say you finally do it, you figure it out, and you finish it, you wrap it up, and you're ready to give this person this thoughtful gift. And among the many gifts this person opens on their birthday, they open yours, and it seems like they don't appreciate it that much. They kind of say, oh, this is nice, but they basically dismiss it for the next gift. And maybe they keep on dismissing it. They keep on loving the other gifts besides your own. It makes you kind of frustrated. Test your patience until you finally tell them, listen, you don't understand. I poured my blood, sweat, and tears into this gift. The cliches we use are really weird, aren't they? Blood, sweat, and tears. I guess this saying is meant to show off the virtue of hard work. We We use it when we're trying to say, like, this was a physically and emotionally agonizing process. So you should appreciate it. But it got me to thinking, have you ever thought about where blood, sweat, and tears come from? Where do blood, sweat, and tears come from? Well, let me tell you a story about a man in a garden. It's not just any man. It's the first man, Adam. And it's not just any garden, it's paradise. You know it as Eden. Now in this garden, Adam faced a test. God told him that he could eat of any tree but one of them. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But the test is way deeper than we realize. The test asks Adam, Adam, are you going to trust God's will or are you going to assert your own? Adam, are you going to trust that God is good or are you going to believe the lie that God is cruel? Well, you might know the story that Adam failed the test. Adam asserted his own, his own will. Adam believed the lie. And as a result, blood, sweat, and tears were introduced into the world. Among the things that God said to Adam after the fall in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As a result of one man's decision about a tree in a garden, blood, sweat, and tears were introduced to the world. And they've been here ever since. There is still homicide and genocide. There is still toil and fatigue. There is still pain and loss. There is still regret and sorrow. There is still physical and emotional agony. So how do we maintain hope with all of the blood, sweat, and tears in the world? With all the blood, sweat, and tears in the world, how can we be sure that we are seen, heard, and safe? Well, let me tell you a story about another man in a garden. It's not just any man. It's the Son of God. The one who lived eternally with God the Father, but took on flesh and became human. This man is in a garden and he faces a test. It's about a tree, too. A tree that he knows will bring about his death. 
And even thinking about this tree brings him agony. His sweat is like blood. His prayer is filled with tears. But Jesus passes the test. He submits to the Father's will, does not assert his own. He entrusts himself to the Father, who he knows is good, not cruel. And as a result of this man's decision about a tree in a garden, blood, sweat, and tears will be eradicated from the world. Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane from Luke chapter 22. If we could sum up the main idea of this passage like we try to do each week, we could put it like this. Jesus's agony in the garden gives us hope in our agony in the world. Jesus's endurance gives us assurance that God hears us when we pray. If you're not, with, if you're not there yet, I invite you to turn to Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, we got the page number on the screen behind me. Uh, and just a heads up, um, the chapter numbers. So when I say 22, that's the big, bold number. And 39 to 46 are the little numbers that come after it. Uh, so I want to invite you to have this passage open our entire time together, just so that you can follow along and also so that you can kind of check my work as we go along. Um, but as after I read, I'm going to say this is God's word. And if you agree that this is God's gift to you, would you say, thanks be to God. So uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine to 46. And he came and went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This is our final sermon in our short series on Jesus's teaching about prayer in the gospel of Luke. And so today we're wanting to ask, how do we hope in the Lord and continue to pray through the crucible of agony? How do we do that? Well, like we endure in any way. We look to Jesus. And I want us to look at Jesus in this passage and see three things about him. I want us, I want us to see his agony, his response to his agony, and his instruction to us. So first, his agony. Just to set this passage in a little, in its context, Jesus knows that resistance against him is mounting. You go back to the early part of chapter 22. Notice the first couple verses. The chief priests and scribes are plotting his death. 
Verse 3, Judas enacts a plan to betray Jesus. We go on. Jesus sits with his disciples for the Passover meal, which will turn into the Lord's Supper. And he knows there that he will be betrayed. He knows there that the disciples will abandon them. He knows that he will be arrested and killed. And despite the anguish we'll see that's in him, Jesus doesn't try to evade what he knows is coming. Notice again, verse 39. He went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, a place called Gethsemane, also uh, the wine, the oil press, as was his custom. So you know what this tells us? This tells us that Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus. It tells us that Jesus didn't wait for his heart to be settled before he walked in trusting obedience. He went out, as was his custom. Even at the beginning of this passage, despite the anguish that is in Jesus, he tells his disciples not to pray for him, but to pray for themselves. I'm going to return to that later. For now, I want us to focus on what's going through Jesus at this moment. Is there a single word that we could sum up Jesus' feelings? We're not left to wonder. We're given a word in verse 44. Agony. Agony. Not about you, but I wondered as I read this, why does Jesus feel this way? You look at history, even in the Bible, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who were martyred, who stare at death and are unflinching. Think of a guy like William Tyndale from England, among the first men to translate the Bible into English. You know, it, was, it used to be illegal for people to own a Bible in their own tongue in England. And when Tyndale refused to stop, he was arrested. He was prepared for execution. They chained Tyndale to a stake. They piled wood, hay, and gunpowder at his feet. And before the flames engulfed his body, William Tyndale's final words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Man, the question is, like, why is Jesus in such agony when others have faced death with such bravery? Well, his agony is unique because his death is unique. No one has ever faced what Jesus faced. And we get a hint of that when he talks about this cup in verse 42. Cup is a symbol from the Old Testament. One pastor points out how the Bible often pictures God's wrath as a cup full of strong, destructive drink. An example of that is from Isaiah 51, verse 17. So like wine intoxicates and causes men to stumble, so the wrath of God will make men stagger in his judgment. So in order to rescue sinners from the power of their sin and the punishment for their sin, Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath for sin. Again, his agony is unique because what he faces in his death is unique. Trying to get some kind of sense to wrap my mind around this. I, I, I remember walking through a place called Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. This museum is different from the one in D.C. Um, because 
It really tries to highlight the real people Nazi Germany imprisoned and exterminated in concentration camps. The museum wants to, wants to take its visitors beyond just statistics. They want, you, they want you to see the humanness of the people who were killed. That they had hopes and dreams. They had hobbies and jobs. These are the kind of people who suffered the brutal and barbaric acts of the Holocaust. And the museum's set up in such a way that you kind of weave in and out. And the whole journey is, is a very uh, somber stillness that kind of descends on the place. It's a swirl of emotions, among them sadness and sorrow. But among the emotions, at least for me, as I walked through this museum, was a righteous wrath against evil. Author Dane Ortland writes, the righteous human wrath we rightly feel against injustice is a drop in the ocean of divine wrath the Father unleashed upon Jesus. Because think about it, it's not just for one person's sin, but it's for the sin of all those who would trust in Christ. All of that came crashing down on a single soul. When you think about it, if Jesus even sweat drops of blood at the thought of this, what must it have been like to actually go through with it? Jesus' agony teaches us a lesson. It teaches us that if, if we think that God is casually indifferent to the wrong that we do, look at Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. If you think right and wrong are, are socially constructed, look at Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. Christian, if you have stopped seriously examining your heart for sin, if you seldom or haphazardly confess your sins to God, look at Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. Reminds me of what we sang earlier. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here, you see its nature rightly. Here, its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. It's the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. The depth of Jesus's agony shows us the darkness of our sin. But if that weren't enough, when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for sin, he would lose the experience of the fellowship he had with the Father. I mean, we can't even begin to understand this either. But again, I think author Dane Orland helps. It's like a three-year-old trying to understand the pain a spouse feels when he or she is cheated on. It's just too much of a gap. Now, just to be clear, trying to do good theology, it's not that the Trinity is broken and the Son lost the Father's love. Absolutely. It's that the Son, as a real human, stood in for all people, lost a sense of the love of God. He lost the open channel of communion with the Father. You think about his whole life. Closeness to the Father was his oxygen. And it was never interrupted because what interrupts our fellowship with God? 
our sin. And Jesus didn't have any sin. So this was his whole life. And now all of a sudden, he bears all of our sins and oxygen is cut off. It reminds me of what we sang earlier. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? But when we look at Jesus' agony, it does give us hope in our agony. And it does this in a lot of ways, but I'll highlight just one of them. Jesus' agony means that he has solidarity with us. Now picture for a moment, let's say that you are in a, a time of kind of peak stress. A time when you don't really know what to do, you're trying to make a decision, you feel like you're at your limit, and you decide that you need to talk to somebody. So you pick up your phone, you open your contacts. If you're in that moment, who is the person you're calling on your phone? Isn't it the person who knows you really well? Isn't it the person who you know is with you and supports you? Isn't it the person who you know understands? Isn't it the person who has solidarity with you? Isn't that the person you call? I mean, it's the same here with Jesus. Jesus is not the general who directs the charge from the rear and looks on out of harm's way. Jesus is a general who leads the charge, who goes before us, who is with the trenches, who is in the trenches with us. You know, Jesus doesn't just know what hunger and fatigue and losing friends are like. He does know those things. This passage tells us even more than that. Jesus knows the deepest agony imaginable. So anytime you feel agony, you remember our Savior is not out of touch with agony. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So may our Lord's solidarity with you beckon you to turn to him in your time of need. So my friend, if you don't feel the darkness of your sin, Jesus' agony tells you that you should. And when you do feel the darkness of your sin, Jesus' endurance through agony tells you that he drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin. It tells you to go to him alone and trust him. My friend, if you haven't done that, would you talk to somebody about that today? How do we endure and continue to pray, hope in the Lord in our agony? Well, we look at Jesus. First, we looked at his agony. And second, we're going to look at his response to agony. I want to make a case again that this helps us and encourages us to pray. Jesus responds to his agony in four ways. He responds to his agony first by submitting his request to God. He submits his request to God. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. A few observations here. Observe how Jesus views God. He views him just as he taught us to view him, as Father. Jesus remembers the Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. Even in his agony, Jesus uses the name Father. Even in his agony, he remembers that his father has a special love and affection for him. 
Observe as Jesus submits his request, how he submits his request. He says, if you are willing. Jesus might be desperate, but he is not demanding. As Jesus submits his request, observe what his request shows about what he believes about God. He believes that his father can remove this cup or else he wouldn't have asked. He believes that there is nothing too hard for his father. He has faith in his prayer. So brothers and sisters, in your moment of agony, you will be tempted to think that God doesn't really want to hear from me. God doesn't care to listen at this moment. Let this moment tell you that that is not true. That all who trust in Christ have been adopted by God as his children. That our Father loves to hear from his children. He invites us in so many places. I think here at Philippians 4 verse 6 that says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus submitted his request. As children of God, we should submit ours. But Jesus responds to his agony in a second way. He submits his will to the Father's. Let's be honest, this is why we remember the passage so well, isn't it? Jesus goes on to pray, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We gotta say, friends, this is the banner that should hang above every single one of our prayers. Not my will, but yours be done. Have you thought about what you're really saying when you say this? When you say, God, your will be done, you say to God, God, you have more wisdom than I do. You say, God, you see things that I don't see. You say, God, your motives are always pure. Mine aren't. When you say, Father, your will be done, you tell God, Father, I trust you to care for me better than I care for myself. Jonathan, our music minister, shared a quote from Tim Keller earlier this week that sums sums us up well. Keller says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Jesus submits his will to the Father. It should make us question ourselves, at least at this level. Friend, are you prepared for God to say no to your prayers? Are you prepared for God to say no to your prayers? This isn't meant to undermine your confidence in God's kindness. In fact, friends, it's actually meant to increase your confidence in God's kindness, strangely enough. Just think about it. How, how would God be kind if he gave us everything we wanted? So when we say your will be done, we tell God that God, prayer is not first about you conforming to my will. Prayer is about me conforming to your will. And it does beg a question, just as a brief aside, as Jesus submits his will to the Father, think about this. If Jesus shares the same nature as God the Father, if Jesus has shared glory with the Father since before the world existed, if Jesus is as equally God as the Father is, then how could Jesus pray like this? Are they out of step? Is Jesus's will contrary to the Father's will? Because it sure seems like that. 
Well, here we do a little bit more on who Jesus is. It must be because Jesus is speaking from his human will, not from his divine will. So when Jesus became human, he did not cease being God. Rather, he added a human nature. Jesus is one person with two natures. So as a man, like everything else that has breath, Jesus naturally just shrinks back from death and pain. Not to mention he shrinks back from bearing the full wrath of God for sin. And yet still, Jesus submits his human will to the Father's will. That's how he responds to his agony. The third way Jesus responds to his agony. So he submits his requests. He submits his will. The third way really doesn't come from him. The third way is that he was strengthened. He was strengthened. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Let me ask you some yes or no questions. This is a time when when you can talk. It's okay. Just say yes or no. Is our God the one who delivers? Yes. Is our God the one who heals? Yes. Is our God the one who conquers? Yes and amen. But friends, our God is also the one who strengthens. Jesus himself is going to say in just a moment, when people are about to arrest him, he tells them, guys, you don't understand. I could call down a legion of angels and they could defeat everybody here. But look at here. An angel does appear to Jesus. But this angel does not conquer Jesus' foes. This angel does not lead Jesus to a way of escape. He, says Jesus, he doesn't tell Jesus, hey, I know a shortcut. We can get out of here. No, this angel strengthens Jesus in his agony. And it makes me think, friend, do you have this category in your prayer life? Is your only category that God just delivers people from their trials? Or do you also have the category that God strengthens people in their trials? Most of you know that uh, earlier this year, a few months ago, that I had thyroid surgery. And um, so I just had a routine physical and they found a golf ball sized mass on my thyroid. I had no idea it was there. Um, So for a while, myself and the doctors didn't know whether it was cancerous. And we started to pray. And so we prayed that it would be benign and that surgery would be straightforward. And God was very kind to answer that prayer. But even at that time, in the midst of the uncertainty, I asked, like, what if it is cancerous? Now, I didn't want to panic unnecessarily. I didn't want to borrow trouble. But I did want to pray more than just at the level, God, deliver me from any kind of pain and inconvenience. Because you know what? Sometimes our wise and caring Father lets us feel the effects of the fall. I also tried to pray, God, if you permit this, Please strengthen me. Friends, God might allow a trial in your life that overwhelms you. God, and God might not deliver you from it, but he does promise to strengthen you in it. Look what he did for Jesus. I love how Matthew Henry, this old pastor who wrote a commentary on all the Bible, uh, he speculates what the angel might have done to strengthen Jesus. You know, perhaps the angel said something to Jesus. 
Maybe he reminded Jesus that, Jesus, you are suffering in order to glorify the Father and to save his people. Maybe the angel did something to strengthen Jesus. Maybe he wiped away Jesus' sweat and tears. Maybe he took Jesus by the arms, helped him off the ground, and bore him up when Jesus was ready to faint. Whatever the case, God might not have delivered Jesus, but he did strengthen Jesus so that Jesus could deliver us. Friend, you might not get an angel right by your side in the midst of your agony, but you know what? As the church, we sure can act like this angel in the midst of one another's agony. And as the church, we're called not just to sit in the same room together, that as a church, we're called to bear one another's burdens. That as the church, we mourn with those who mourn. That as the church, we sit together, we listen, we help, we strengthen. Jesus responds to his agony. He submits his request. He submits his will. He was strengthened. Fourthly, he soldiered on. Verse 44 says that he prayed more earnestly. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about perseverance in prayer. Is not Jesus our model for it? The deeper his agony, the more fervent his prayer. The fifth way Jesus responds to his agony. I told you only four, but I'm keeping you on your toes. There's a bonus way. The fifth way is that Jesus stands up. He stands up. Verse 45, he arose from his prayer. And you know what I don't see in between verse 44 and 45? I don't see the father intervening and say, okay, Jesus, you don't have to drink the cup. There's no answer like that. Jesus gets no indication that the father will remove the cup of his wrath from him. But Jesus still stands up ready and resolved to drink that cup. Why? Well, it has to be he does it for us, for his own people. Jesus stands up ready to endure hell so that we might enjoy him in heaven. Jesus stands up ready to endure rejection from God so that we might be accepted by God. Jesus stands up ready to die so that we can live. So we say, Lord Jesus, thank you for standing up in that garden. We can continue to hope in the Lord through our agony. We can do this by looking to Jesus. We looked at his agony. We looked at his response to agony. And lastly, we're going to look at Jesus' instruction and try to follow it. His instruction comes up twice. It's hard to miss. Verse 40 and verse 46. He tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, when we look at his instruction, we might be too quick to explain the content of that prayer and skip over the act of praying itself. So we ask ourselves, am I in agony? Am I in a crisis? Am I anxious? What does Jesus tell me to do? He tells me to pray. I shared this a couple weeks ago with with a couple different sisters in the lobby. Um, Jesus' instruction to pray here, uh, that goes against my just instinctive reaction. So I think about any time that uh, Kate tells me she has a headache. So any time that Kate tells me she has a headache, it's like 20 questions for me. 
All right, so first, first I'll ask her, like, hey, have you tried taking some Tylenol? Maybe she says, yeah, well, hey, well, maybe if Tylenol didn't work, have you tried taking some Advil? Maybe, yeah, the Advil's not doing anything. Well, what about if, like, a cool compress on your forehead? Have you tried doing that? Well, yeah, I don't know. That does, this seems kind of weird. Do you have, what about lying down? Could you consider lying down, like, just in the dark and take a nap for a few minutes? I, I did that. It doesn't really help. Well, what if, when's the last time you saw the doctor? This must be a really serious headache. Like, let's go see the doctor. All right, well, he's not available for a few weeks. Well, how about at least a glass of water? You never drink enough water. Okay, I'm going to get you a glass of water. No, still, I drank water. It's like, all right, well, can you just Google, like, what is the best way to get rid of a headache? Now, I, I've, said, I've said this before. Uh, God works through means. Like, we are thankful for the gifts of medicine and doctors. Don't hear me not saying that. But even in something as simple and as routine as a headache, we treat prayer like our last resort. J.C. Ryle says this, let us take care that we use our master's remedy if we want comfort in our affliction. Whatever other means of relief we use, let us pray. The first friend we should turn to ought to be God. The first message we send ought to be to the throne of grace. No depression of spirits must prevent us. No crushing weight of sorrow must make us silent. It is a prime device of Satan to supply the afflicted man with false reasons for keeping quiet before God. In other words, Satan wants you not to pray. J.C. Ryle continues, if we can say nothing else, we can say with Isaiah 38, 14, Lord, I am oppressed. Please help me. That's the act of praying. It should be our first response to agony as Jesus instructs us and even as Jesus models for us. But what about the content of our prayers? Jesus instructs us to pray that we might not enter into temptation. Now, it might sound kind of confusing, a question we could ask is, what is the temptation Jesus is talking about? And there we might need to keep in mind the context. Jesus has just warned his disciples, even foretold that his disciples would deny him and abandon him. He has warned them that they would be tempted to abandon him instead of support him, to run away from him instead of stick close to him. I think that's got to be the temptation that they face. But another question we can ask in light of Jesus' instruction is, is, what is Jesus telling them to do? I mean, isn't temptation inevitable? Well, here we got to look closely at what Jesus is saying. He doesn't tell them, pray that you would not be tempted. He tells them, pray that you would not enter into temptation. Pray that you wouldn't flirt with it. Pray that you wouldn't entertain it. Pray that you wouldn't give into it. You might have heard of what Martin Luther said about temptation. You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Look at the content of Jesus' prayer that he instructs us to pray. I think this reprioritizes what we pray about. It reprioritizes what we pray about. It's a convicting word for me. Because I look out at my future as a pastor, I look out at the future of this church, 
And I ask God for growth in certain areas. I ask God, God, would you raise up new pastors? God, would you grow our community group? God, would you send us more kids? God, would you make more disciples here? I think those are good requests. But Jesus' instruction might make me reshift my priorities. That before I ask God for results, I should ask God, God, keep my heart loving and obeying you. Before I ask for results, I should ask God, God, keep me from sin. Before I ask for results, I should ask God, God, keep me loving my wife. Before I ask for results, I should ask God, God, keep our church faithful to your word. We don't want to take that for granted. Because, you know, maybe so many pastors have disqualified themselves. Maybe so many churches have crumbled apart because they don't feel the urgency of Jesus's instruction here. They don't share his priorities just to pray that we would not enter into temptation. My friend, are these your priorities? Do you pray for results more than you pray for your own obedience? Because if sin caused this much agony for our Lord, would we dare even flirt with it? If God's wrath towards sin caused Jesus to sweat like drops of blood, would we dare not share this priority in prayer that he instructs us? Jesus' instruction, though, should make us ask one last question. We should ask ourselves, what if we fail? It's not really an if, is is it? It's a when. Because Jesus returns from prayer, he finds his disciples sleeping. Even though he recognizes their weariness, he questions why they don't feel the urgency of the moment. And just think about this. Luke tells us that they were within a stone's throw of Jesus. I take that as meaning like they could hear Jesus. You see, think about this. They could hear Jesus weeping and they decided to keep sleeping. Fellow disciple of Jesus, there will be times when we choose other activities and neglect prayer. There will be times when we're like Peter in Luke 22, verse 54, haunting verse, when, he, when we follow Jesus at a distance. There will be times when we don't keep our old sinful tendencies in check. There will be times when we flirt with temptation and disobey Jesus' instruction. What happens then? Well, if we only had Jesus' instruction, we would be hopeless. We need more than what Jesus has taught We need what Jesus has done. Jesus' disciples slept when they should have supported him. But you know what? They're the same disciples for whom Jesus will be slain. He will drink the cup of God's wrath for their sin. The ones who failed him. The ones who abandoned him. What love is this? So may Jesus' faithful, sacrificial love for sinners so undeserving, draw us back to him when we fail. May we find strength to press on through our agony by remembering Jesus' endurance through his unimaginable agony for us. Friends, let's pray for his help. Would you join me?
Lord Jesus, your blood has washed away our sin. Thank you. The bitter cup of God's wrath that we deserve, you drank for us. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we we could never say thank you enough. And now we, we are humbly joyful that we are we have no more condemnation. That, there, that we are not destined for wrath, but for glory. That we are not destined for rejection, but we have been accepted all because of what you have done for us. So Lord, as we remember your agony, as we remember your response to it, as we remember your instruction to us, help us to trust you and just talk to you when we face agony. That in everything, not in some things, in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, we make our requests known to you, trusting your will and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first way we respond 